morning, South Suburban. Good to see you guys. My name is Spencer. If you are new or visiting this morning, I run the youth ministry here, and I'm honored and excited to be able to dive into God's Word this morning. We've got a lot to cover, um, and I just want to take a moment and just pray, just come before the Lord before we jump in too far. So if you guys would pray with me one more time, I know we prayed a couple times already, but it helps me. Father, thank you for um, your word. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to just, uh, God, wrestle with who you are, to see you um, more clearly, and to hear you preach to us and to our spirits this morning. I just pray, God, would your, um, would your power and your truth flow through this message today, Lord, would it honor you. In the name of Jesus, everybody pray. Amen. Okay, I love donuts. Is anybody else here? Agree with me on that? Yeah, I know most of you are lying. Every, everyone loves donuts. Um, Sunday mornings, right, they're good for my soul. They're not so good for my midsection because churches are notorious for giving, like, the worst food. I mean, it's just delicious, but it's not healthy at all, and that's okay. I just go, you know, it's an occupational hazard of working at a church and that you just are surrounded by that stuff. But every Sunday morning when I go buy donuts for our student ministry, right, I put it in the seat next to me, and I got to drive here, and it's like putting anything in front of a toddler and just saying, don't touch it, and then walking away and expecting it to happen, right? It's just like, I mean, it's just, it, it grabs me. Does anyone else have something or maybe more than one thing in their life that's just like, it, it overcomes your reasonable faculties, right? And it just says, I'm attracted to this like a bug to a UV light. I can't say no, right? Does anyone else have something like that in their life? Okay, all of you are lying so far. Great. <laughs> Everyone's hands should be up, right? Because that's part of being human, is that we have some things that draw us. Sometimes, a lot of those things aren't good for us. And that is why as we go into the Lord's Prayer this, this morning, we're looking at um, verse 13. And at verse 13 begins like this. Jesus says, lead us not into temptation. Now, pastries are a kind of fun example of temptation, but there's a lot more, obviously, that goes into that. But before we get too far, if you look at this and you think about this closely for a moment, right, it kind of begs the question, why do I need to pray this part of the prayer? Why do I need to ask this question of God? Because if you think about it, you could be led to believe, well, okay, if I don't say, Lord, don't lead me into temptation, then what? God, God might actually do that, right? Are we asking God to not tempt us? Is that what this is about? Thankfully, the answer didn't take too long to find. James 1.13 says this. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, right? And that makes sense, because God does not associate with evil. God is not interested in enticing us, tricking us, right, into failing. That is not the character of God. We're not asking God to be good to us when we pray this part of the prayer. What we're actually doing is we are acknowledging our human weakness. If you're taking notes this morning, this is the first thing for you guys to write down. We acknowledge our human weakness weakness when we pray this prayer. Recently, um, my wife and I were going to visit some friends that we have who just had a kid, right? And so they're like, try, you know, I don't know if any of you remember what it was like to be parents for the first time. Your life is completely thrown up in the air. Everything's up for grabs. Sleep is optional. Like, you don't even, you don't even remember what day of the week it is. Like, all that stuff is going on. So we're like, we're just going to give them some food, right? So we're going to get some Thai food on the way there. 
And so my wife goes, oh, yeah, there's a place on the way. We'll go and we'll pick it up. And I immediately go, I know exactly what you're talking about. There's a place on County Line. We went there a couple of weeks ago that's near their house. It'll be perfect. So we're driving there. And, of course, I'm just like, yeah, I know exactly where we're going. I don't know the name of it, but I know exactly where it is. We pull up to Broadway and County Line. She goes, are you sure that you don't want me to to look up the directions? I said, of course not. I'm a man. I know where I'm going. Don't ask again. Okay, so she does it anyways, and she goes, oh, it looks like you're supposed to take a left here. I said, no, 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 no. It's just, it's tucked in a shopping center. There's two ways to get there. I know where I'm going, of course, right? And so you may, you may know where this story is going. As we go, you know, two miles down, university, I'm like, I thought it was right here, but it's, it must be one more block. Go one more block down. There's just homes. There's no businesses. And I, I finally go, you know, Babe, what's the name of the place again that we're actually going? And she goes, oh, it's called Little Basil. I said, are you kidding me? I said, that's over by the church. Why didn't you tell me that? And so she goes, she just gives me that look that only wives can do, you know. And she goes, would you like directions now? Um, so we were late. It was my fault. But that's an example, right? Guys, like every man in here probably has done that once or 50,000 times. To say, I don't need directions. I know where I'm going. The reason I tell that story is because most theologians would agree that the essence of sin is pride, right? And that's an example of me thinking I knew where I was going, thinking I knew what I was doing, and I didn't. And so when we acknowledge our human weakness, when we pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation, we're not making a declaration to God because we're afraid that God's going to do something. We're declaring, Lord, I will. I will wander. I will walk into temptation if you don't correct me, if you don't lead me in a different direction. We've got to recognize, if we want to pray this prayer with honesty, that our hearts are prone to wander, right? That may sound familiar to some of you from that, I forget what hymn it is, prone to wander, Lord. But we must acknowledge the fact our hearts want to walk away from the Lord. We're not good or sufficient enough on our own. We can't handle it. And like that is a human condition to say, I've got this handled. I can do this. I'm enough. And this prayer forces us to humble ourselves enough to say, Lord, I actually don't. I actually don't trust myself. And you shouldn't. I shouldn't trust myself because I know that I'm going to wander off course. Now, just because you've prayed this or just because you said, Lord, please don't lead me in a temptation, that does not mean that once you've done that, you can just go ahead and do whatever it is on earth that you feel like doing. Say, well, Lord, I prayed to you, and yet here I am. It must be your fault, right? God tempts no one, right? It is our responsibility for our choices. We are accountable for where we go, what we do, and what we place around us, okay? And so this is what Jesus says about temptation in Mark 9, verse 43. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. It's a friendly thought, Sunday morning. Now, in the history of the church, there have been a few people who have taken this very literally. And I want to be very clear this morning. I am not encouraging you to use surgery as a means of finding godliness, okay? That is not my point, and I don't say that because I'm saying don't take the word of God seriously. It's because Jesus is using a metaphor to say, whatever causes you to sin in your life, it is better for you to cut that out than for you to walk with two hands or two feet, right, so to speak, through life to your own destruction. 
right? Because the kicker in this statement, and it took me a long time when I was a new believer to be like, why did he say that? That's really scary. Because your hand never makes you sin. You do. Your foot never makes you sin. You do. Your eye never makes you sin. You and I do. And the things that we place around us. And so what Jesus is saying is there's something in your life. There's a circumstance. There's a place. There's an object. There's a habit in your life that causes you to walk away from God, to choose sin, to choose death over life. He's saying, cut that thing off. Be ruthless in pursuing me, pursuing godliness. And so when we talk about sins, right, it's really common for us to immediately go, oh yeah, I'm thinking about big external sins, the ones everyone can see, the ones we like to talk about, the ones that are easy to point out in others. But I think a lot of us, especially in a context like this, struggle more with the ones that are maybe a little bit quieter, a little bit harder to see. And so for example, if Jesus is saying, if you have a friend that you know loves to gossip, loves to talk about other people, loves to talk badly about other people, Jesus is saying it is better for you to cut that relationship off than to be sucked in to sin because it will destroy you and it will destroy your faith because sin destroys. If you cannot control your choices online, whether with your smartphone or on your laptop or on something, Jesus is saying, cut it off. Delete the app, put a screen timer on so you don't spend 22 hours a day like this, pushing buttons, install accountability software. What he's saying is cut it off. Be ruthless in pursuing me. Do not let yourself live in temptation. Do not play with fire. Jesus is saying it is better for you to limit your freedoms than to indulge your desires to your own end. That's a hard word. That's a challenging word to us. Jesus is saying, if you believe lies about your self-worth, if you believe the lie that your self-worth is tied to your paycheck, that your self-worth is tied to your moral accomplishments, that your self-worth is tied to how other people look at you, how many likes you get on your posts, God is saying, do whatever it takes to cut those voices out of your life. Cut them out. Cut it off. It is better for you to live a life free from social media, free from the radio, or free from whoever is speaking into your life lies than it is for you to indulge those things, try and fight the battle, and be dragged down. Do not play with fire, church, when it comes to temptation. All of us have different things in our lives that pull us away from God. Some of them seem really destructive. Some of them seem harmless. But if it pulls you away from loving Jesus, it pulls you away from the life he's called you to live, God is saying this morning to you, don't play with that. Don't play around with temptation. Cut it off. Cast it away. When we pray to the Lord, Lord, lead me not into temptation. We're not asking God to be good to us because he is. We're asking God, we're declaring to ourselves, actually, we're acknowledging our human weakness. We're declaring to God, Lord, I will choose this if you don't direct my steps. So would you please correct me? Now, as if our own hearts weren't enough to contend with, Jesus has another half of this verse, right? And he says this, he says, but deliver us from evil, which is fun because now we get to remember there's another element in the story. There's another factor at 
play. And so when we, when we say, Lord, deliver us from you, we're gonna say a couple of things. We're gonna look at a couple of things. I'm gonna chop this phrase in half, and we're gonna take it one half at a time, and I'm gonna work backwards. When we, when we look at this phrase, we must, and this may seem obvious, we must declare, we must recognize that evil is actually a real thing in order to be delivered from it. In order to say, Lord, deliver me from evil, we must actually declare evil is real. It doesn't take much to look around at the news today, right, and see things in our world that would testify to that fact. That there are a lot of things going on in the world that we live in that we would easily describe as evil, that are working to destroy the goodness, the joy of human life, human society. And yet, there are a lot of people in our culture, there's a lot of thought in our culture that says evil is not really a thing anymore. That's an outdated idea, right? Evil is not something um, that we want to call out and agree as a culture anymore. Say, that is evil. We like to dress it up. We like to call it other things. Because if, in order to have evil, objective evil, say, that is evil, that means we have to have an objective right and an objective wrong. And in our academic institutions, in our culture, that idea has been thrown out and trampled. The problem is that our, our consciences cry out against that idea because when we see acts of evil, our hearts go, that is wrong. We need to do something about that. Someone needs to do something about that. And secondly, is that we see Jesus interacting with evil, describing evil to us. In Matthew 4, Jesus, and this is a fascinating passage, Jesus is baptized. Immediately, the next verse, it says, the Spirit of God led him to go into the desert to be tempted by the devil, by Satan, by the enemy, whatever you want to call him. I find that fascinating, and I wish we had time to look into how that works and why Jesus actually did that. We have to understand, in Greek, the phrase, deliver us from evil, can be translated legitimately, deliver us from the evil one, okay? Everything in Greek has the word the attached to it. If you've ever taken Greek, hopefully you haven't. It's kind of fun. It's mainly just really difficult. Um, everything in Greek, the word order doesn't matter, okay? In English, you read things left to right, and that's the word order. That's how grammar works. In Greek, it's not that way. The words are thrown on the page almost randomly, and you have to just play this fun, like, mental game of connecting the dots based on the way the words are, in, you know, it's like, oh, it's terrible. But Every word has the word the attached to it, okay? And so in English, if you have the word the attached to it, it's become definite, right? The table. That's a specific table, not a table, okay? In Greek, that's not the case. And so when we translate this phrase, right, it has the word the. So it could be the evil one, or it could just be evil. I don't think that those are contradictory terms. I think that it makes sense to say, yes, evil is a thing. Evil is an adjective. Evil describes what goes on in this world. But in, we got to recognize, guys, evil is a verb. Evil is a thing in this world that happens. Evil is an active presence as part of this universe. And I would argue that evil is a being as well. Because in Matthew 4, Jesus interacts with the being called the evil one. And in 1 Peter 5, 8, it says this. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, pay attention. It does not say God's adversary, the devil. It says your. 
This is not something we talk about a lot in church, and I don't want to make this a sermon about demonology, though that was a fun class to take in seminary. But your adversary, there is a being. Satan is Hebrew for accuser. It's a verb, okay? That's where we get the name Satan, the accuser, okay, the liar. He is not the enemy of God, though he opposes God. He's the enemy of us, of humanity. His goal is to destroy the human race, to lead us away from what God is trying to do. And what's amazing to me, what's so fascinating, is he's not depicted as this powerful being. He's not depicted as mighty. He's not depicted as un, you know, unstoppable. He doesn't use massive acts of violence or power primarily as his tool. You know what he does is he lies. He deceives in Genesis 3, we read that he is the most crafty of all the beings. He's called the deceiver, and his primary method is to get us to believe lies and let us do the dirty work for him. John eight forty four says this. Jesus is speaking. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Some translations say when he lies, he's speaking his native language, which I think is an interesting way to look at it. He is a liar and the father of lies. His goal, church, is to get us to believe anything but God's truth, to lead us away from what is right, what is good, what is noble, what is honorable, what is true, and into lie. And I'd say that the root of most evil in this world is lies. But perhaps the most damaging and dangerous kind of lie is a lie about who God is. Genesis 3, the beginning of this age that we currently live in, where sin is rampant, death is the default setting for all life. What does our enemy do? He does not destroy us, he doesn't attack us, he doesn't shoot us with stuff. He lies, and he goes to us and says, you know what? God isn't good after all. He told you to not eat of this tree, but he's just holding out on you. He doesn't want you to know what it's like to be him because he's afraid that you'll take over. He's afraid, and so he's tricking you. And so Adam and Eve believe that lie and bring sin and death into the world. When Jesus faces this being, this Satan accuser, in Matthew 4, when you'd imagine that going against the Son of God, he's gonna pull out his best trick. Do you know what he does? Is he uses scripture incorrectly to try and convince Jesus of things that are not true about God. He twists the word of God to mean something it could never mean to get Jesus to sin against the creator, against the Father. Now, Jesus is not like us in that Jesus did not fail because all of us do and have. That's the human condition, Right? But that is our enemy's tactic, is to convince us of things about God. And that should, that should scare us a little bit because truth is powerful. Truth about God is life-changing. Lies about God can also be life-changing. And truth matters to Jesus. Jesus says in Mark 9, 42, that if you lead someone as a teacher away from the truth of who God is, 
It would be better for you to have a millstone, which is huge, right? It's a boulder tied around your neck, thrown off a cliff into the sea than to face him for doing that. Jesus takes truth very seriously, especially truth about God, because Jesus says the truth will set you free, which means that lies keep you captive. We are praying, Lord, deliver us from evil, because evil is real. Evil is a temptation. Evil is out for us. And any of us who teach, any of us who lead classes or lead any kind of small group or do any kind of teaching should pause at that thought when Jesus says, it is better for you to be drowned than to face me for leading someone into untruth about me. That's a scary thought a little bit. Kind of humbles you. God has placed you in a position of spiritual authority. And it challenges us as we look at who Jesus is because Jesus says the truth about me is going to cause division. Because standing up for what Jesus is, who Jesus is, guarantees division. And Jesus promised that, Luke 12, 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. He goes on immediately after that to say, a man's enemies will be from his own household. A mother and a daughter will turn against each other. A father and a son will turn against each other because Jesus makes you make a choice about truth. Matthew 12, 30, Jesus says this, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. He doesn't say whoever does not gather with me sits around on the fence. He doesn't say whoever is not with me is just, is just in the middle. He says whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever is not actively a part of my mission is working against me. Guys, this is a challenging word for our culture and for our time, but Jesus is saying that there is no neutral when it comes to him and who he is. There is no pass on the question of who Jesus Christ is. Our most essential belief as a church is that Jesus is the one true God, the savior of humanity, that he has come to right the wrongs, he has come to redeem us as a people who were trapped in sin. And we either choose that and we say, yes, Lord, or we say, no. But you cannot pass on the question of who Jesus is. And the good news, church, is that Jesus has come to deliver us from evil. Because all of us are facing lies, right? Maybe they're lies about who God is. Maybe they're lies about who we are, about our self-worth. Maybe they're lies about our family, about our future, about our past. Where are you today? What lies are speaking to your spirit today that are stealing life from you, stealing life from your family? Because Jesus wants to deliver you from them today. Because if we cry out to God, we may have a roaring lion as an enemy, but he is no match for the lion of the tribe of Judah, the alpha and the omega, the one who was and is and is to come the king of all kings, the Lord of lords, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess as Lord at the end of time. That's who's on our side. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Guys, our Savior, our God is a, is a conqueror. He is a king. He is a deliverer. 
And that's where we're gonna go, Matthew 6, 13. Deliver us. When we say this, when we say, Lord, deliver us from evil, we are declaring, we are proclaiming God's victory over evil. And this is where we're gonna wrap up this morning. Matthew 20, 28 says this. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How many of you know that you don't pay a ransom if no one's in trouble? You don't pay a ransom if no one's in need of being rescued. The cross of Jesus Christ was pointless if you and I did not need it to be saved. If we did not need to be rescued from sin. In Genesis 3, when we, when we believed the lie about God, the entire creation was bound by sin, including you and including me. We're born with a fatal blood disease in our hearts and in our spirits that lead to death. And without the salvation offered through Jesus Christ, we're trapped. But our God did not watch that condition and say, man, either judge him right away and just say, let's just get this over with. I'll start over. He didn't just watch us happen and suffer and be like, man, look at those pathetic beings. He came to us and he made a way at the cost of his own life because he is so passionate about you finding life, living free, being freed from the bondage of lies and sin and slavery to bad habits, to death itself. God has come to free you. Our God is a deliverer. The cross of Christ and his resurrection three days later is our greatest hope in this life. And as we've been reflecting as a culture on the life of Billy Graham who passed this week, it's been such a stark and powerful reminder to my spirit to say, you know what? This life is really hard a lot of times and there's a lot of battles to be fought and there's a lot of stuff and sacrifice to be made. But to end your life and have people say, that man changed the world for Christ. That man has a reward waiting for him in heaven. Like, that's what it's about. That is what it's about. And so this morning, if you haven't put yourself in that place, if you haven't said, Lord Jesus, you are my king. You are the king. If you feel like I am trapped in a lie and I see it and I don't know how to get out, I wanna just create an opportunity for us this morning as a church to, to declare that, to confess, to, to cry out to Jesus, Lord, deliver me. Because our God is a saving God, a redeeming God, a powerful God. And so if you guys would pray with me, if you're in that place this morning, just say, Father, I need your deliverance. I need you, Jesus, to make me new to free me from myself, to free me from the power of this world, to free me from sin. Father, give me the courage and the strength to walk away from temptation. I pray, Jesus, would you come in? Would you change me from the inside out? Would you make me new? In Jesus' name, amen. Because for all of us in here this morning, don't play with fire. Don't flirt with temptation. Don't take lightly the call to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And when it comes to evil, stay away. Recognize that our enemy wants us to believe anything but the truth, so root yourself in him.
Root yourself in the word of God. Root yourself in prayer. Root yourself, especially this week, as we go through a week of prayer and fasting, what an incredible opportunity for us to recenter as a body on who God actually is. To hear the word of God, to hear him speak to us in prayer, to free us. But our God is a saving God. And he wants to deliver us. So we're gonna end as we have this entire series by reading the Lord's Prayer together. So if you guys would pray out loud with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.